Welcome to the Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. Today's message was originally preached on September 6, 2020 by Pastor Rob Schaff. It is the sixth and final message in our sermon series, Gospel and Cultural Fluency. Check out sardisfellowship.com for more information. Over the last six weeks, we have been talking about gospel and cultural fluency. Fluency means having the ability to articulate oneself easily and accurately. People who are fluent in a language speak and think and dream in that language. Imagine that the gospel is a language, and imagine that our culture is a language. Do you understand it? Can you speak it? Do you know a word or two, or are you fluent in it? Do you think in it? Can you dream in it? The language of our culture is the desires and the values that people live out. How well do we speak and understand and dream in the language of our culture? How well do we bridge those two conversations between gospel and our culture? We talked about how people aren't buckets to be filled with the right stuff, the correct values. People are more like arrows moving towards their desires. And our culture shapes and forms our desires and desires to follow our dreams in life and desires to exercise power over our lives and desires to have relationships that satisfy and desires to be successful and to be seen as a success. Those are all desires that our culture forms in us. But as long as the arrow of our lives is moving towards something that isn't God, we'll only be let down because none of those things will ultimately satisfy because we were created to desire God and to find our satisfaction in God. Our culture says, follow your dreams, exercise power, get the best relationships, be successful. This is as good as it gets. The only way to create meaning in life is to meet your desires. But we say, along with C.S. Lewis, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. When we treat people like buckets and not like arrows, we try and get people to embrace the proper values without ever making the effort to understand and address their desires. We make the gospel out to be behavior modification, a list of do's and don'ts. We aren't giving people the good news of Jesus. We're just giving people a big job to do without actually giving them any desire to do it. Now, Jesus himself warned against this. In Matthew 23, 1-12, Jesus said to the crowds and his disciples, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats at the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father, and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. I believe that disciples of Christ must continually examine ourselves, because there are areas of our life 
in our values and in our desires where we haven't fully believed the gospel. We're still aiming at something that will fall short of the glory of God. We must examine ourselves. I believe that disciples should know and live the gospel so well that we embody it, we live it, we speak it, we think it, we dream it, we practice gospel until we are fluent in the gospel and this takes time. I believe that disciples should know our culture so well that we can understand it and speak it and with it and dream with it. We must become fluent in culture so we can speak gospel to it in a way that people actually understand that takes practice. I believe that we cannot do this alone. This isn't a one-player game. I believe the church is essential to being gospel and culturally fluent. And that is what the sermon series that we've been endeavoring to walk through um, is about. It's to help us identify some broad underlying cultural values, demonstrating how believing the gospel changes those values to show how the good news of what Jesus has done for us by dying on the cross, by raising again, by conquering in sin and death, how that changes everything about our lives. Today we're closing the sermon series, but we're not ending the conversation. Today we are talking about Jesus' desire for the church. I got a story for you. When I was attending Columbia Bible College, my contemporary church class had an assignment where I was supposed to attend a cultural church uh, defined as a congregation that is primarily consisting of people from a different culture. Now, this class gave us a list of recommended multicultural churches to check out. And they were recommended because if we went to one of those recommended multicultural campuses, there would be enough overlap with what we as normal normal CBC students, and what we would consider to be normal, there'd be enough overlap that we would be able to engage with the church deeply, to talk with people easily, to get a really good understanding of what the church was about, and we would get a good grade. These were churches that we would like. But I couldn't go to any of the recommended multicultural churches because I worked here at Sardis Fellowship leading worship on Sunday mornings, and they all met at the same time as uh, that I would be at our church on stage leading worship, so I had to think of something different. And under a bit of a time crunch, I ended up going to a Korean church in Abbotsford that met Sunday afternoons. I showed up a bit early uh, just to make sure that it was all right that I was inviting myself to their church service. And the pastor came up to me and said, uh, before anyone else got there, you know, of course you are welcome to be here, but it's going to be all in Korean. You aren't going to understand anything. And I said that was okay because the assignment was to observe what deep differences and commonalities existed between my church and his church. And he said, well, you won't understand anything, so I'm not sure what you'll be able to understand about the differences and what we have in common. But, of course, you're welcome to be here. Um, and, you know, as expected, everything was in Korean. The songs were in Korean. And most of them weren't even translations of worship songs that I knew. They were, like, purely Korean songs, other than maybe, like, Blessed Be Your Name. But, like, the majority of them, I had no clue what was going on. And I couldn't tell what was going on in the service at all. It was a very confusing experience. Now, at one point, I noticed that the people around me had stood up. And so I stood up. But then I looked around and noticed that not everybody stood up and that I was, you know, including myself in this group of a few people. And some kids were laughing at me, so I sat down. It felt like I was in Mr. Bean. And anyway, the sermon was coming up, and it felt like I was going to be in for an hour of preaching and teaching that I wouldn't comprehend. And I sighed to myself, and I wondered, oh, how am I going to do this assignment? I don't even know what's going on. And the pastor, he got up to the pulpit with a big smile on his face, and he took the time to scan the room, and it seemed like he was making eye contact with everybody in the congregation. 
And then he opened up his mouth and he said, Shalom. And I wanted to laugh and cry at the same time. Shalom. This is a word that I knew. My time at Bible college taught me that shalom is a Hebrew word that could be translated as peace, but as an idea and as a concept, it was so much bigger. It's the Hebrew concept of right relationship with God and with each other and with with creation. It's said as a greeting and it's said as a blessing, but actually it's the heart of the gospel in one word. Jesus died and was resurrected, conquering sin and death so that we can have right relationship with God, with each other, and with all of creation. With that one word, I knew what it was that we had in common. It was Jesus, the gospel, the hope that we have in him. Now, after the service, they had this awesome potluck with amazing Korean food. They gave me this soup, which was, up until that point in my life, and maybe even now to this day, the spiciest food that I have ever eaten in my entire life. One of the church elders spoke English, and he came over, and we talked about shalom. We talked about the gospel. There's a saying I'm sure you've heard. Like attracts like. People naturally want to be with people who are like them. It's innocent enough when it means we like to hang out with people who share the same interests or hobbies as we do. Like musicians like hanging out with other musicians. And hockey fans like talking about hockey with other hockey fans, especially if they're fans of the same team. Artists like being with artists. Dancers like being with dancers. Pickleball players like being with other pickleball players, whatever. Connecting with someone is easy if you work in a similar career field or if you're in a similar stage of life or if you have similar family makeups or upbringings or if you share a worldview. If you get into a conversation with someone who you don't know, chances are the first thing that you do is try to find a point of commonality because it's easy to have a conversation with someone you have something in common with. It isn't easy to talk to someone you have nothing in common with. It can be awkward and uncomfortable at best and antagonistic and problematic at worst. There's a reason people consider it impolite to talk about religion or politics at family reunions. They're divisive subjects because even though it's your own family, we don't always feel like we have a lot in common, especially on those big topics. And so we commonly consider it to be polite to steer clear of those potential differences. If you've ever had a clash of values with someone at a Thanksgiving table, you know how difficult it can be to desire to be around that person. Now, when there are whole people groups who only like other people who are like them, that begins to become a problem. Whole groups of people can value things that other groups of people don't. And sometimes there's acceptance, and sometimes there's tolerance, but that isn't always the case. When people hate others, who they perceive to be different than they are, then you definitely have a problem because there are people that are different than us. That's at the root of our struggles in our world with racism and sexism and classism, and it can lead to bullying and discrimination all the way up to a society of systematic racism and a culture of exploitation. At some points in human history, it has gone all the way to the point of crusades and war crimes against humanity and genocide And these days, injustice around racism and sexism and classism is in the news constantly. Our culture seems to be tearing itself apart. Everything is so polarized. Emotions are so high. Injustice is rampant. And like-minded people groups rise up against people who aren't like-minded. The injustice is real and the culture is broken. 
What does the gospel of Jesus have to do with such a broken culture? Well, the gospel of Jesus has everything to do with such a broken culture. Matthew 5, 13 to 16 talks about this. It's in the middle of Jesus' most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. But before we get to the verses, uh, verses 13 to 16, we need to talk about being blessed, which is how Jesus starts the sermon. Now, when we think of being, being blessed, we tend to think of it along lines of our culture, like blessed are the rich, the happy, the self-assured, the self-made, the powerful, the awesome, the famous, the haves, not the have-nots. If you search uh, hashtag blessed on Instagram, you are sure to see pictures of people living their best life. Now we know, we all know Instagram is a caricature of reality, people editorializing their lives and making themselves look awesome. But when you think of being blessed, you probably think of your family, being healthy, having a job, being able to pay your bills, the little things maybe that help you get through the day-to-day that you are thankful for. But Jesus says at the beginning of his sermon, that's not what blessing looks like. Matthew 5, 3 to 12, Jesus says, this is what blessing looks like. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, those who are persecuted, the insulted. Why? Why does Jesus talk about blessing in a way that seems so backwards to our sensibilities? Well, because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They will be comforted. They will inherit the earth. They will be filled. They will receive mercy. They will see God, and great is their reward in heaven. Because people who are like that desire God, and they will receive him. Blessed are those who desire God, and don't confuse and trade in the true blessing of God's presence for the distractions of things that we tend to like and pursue. Because those who desire God will find God. And then Jesus says this, verse 13, You are the salt of the earth, but what good is salt if it has lost its flavor? Can you make it salty again? It will be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. You are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see, so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. That's Matthew 5, 13 to 16. Now, I feel like in uh, Eugene Peterson's translation, The Message, he really communicates well what Jesus is getting at. He says this, Let me tell you why you are here. You are here to be salt seasoning that brings out the God flavors of this earth. If you lose your saltiness, how will people taste godliness? You've lost your usefulness and will end up in the garbage. Here's another way to put it. You are here to be light, bringing out the God colors in the world. God is not a secret to be kept. We're going public with this, as public as a city on a hill. If I make you light bearers, you don't think I'm going to hide you under a bucket, do you? I'm putting you on a light stand. Now that I've put you there on a hilltop, on a light stand, shine. Keep open house Be generous with your lives. By opening up to others, you'll prompt people to open up with God, this generous Father in heaven. You are how people taste godliness. When people search for godliness, you are where they find it. You are how people see the world God's way. You do this so everyone will praise God. You are salt and light. So, who's you? Well, 
we are the you, the disciples of Jesus together, the church. Remember, this isn't a one-player game. This isn't something you can even do alone. This is what Jesus desires for the church. This is what God designed the church to be. This is what it's all about. We are salt and light so the world can taste and see the Lord is good. This is also what God desired for Israel to be. Every nation on earth was to be blessed and come to know God through their interaction with God's nation of Israel, God's people, the people that desired God, living under a different set of values who had the law. And now that Jesus has come to fulfill that law, he is calling his disciples, his followers, his church, to be salt and to be light, to have their desires set on him, to have their values transformed by him, and to show the world what it looks like to play by a totally different set of rules different set of rules towards God, towards each other, towards all of creation. The church is to be salt and light. But like Israel in the Old Testament, we are constantly tempted to think that we exist in God's blessing for ourselves. Uh, We've always been in danger of becoming bland and dull, not because we are boring and unentertaining or because we can't match our culture's production values or because the worship songs aren't hip enough or the pastor's sneakers aren't trendy enough or the Christian subculture isn't cool enough. All of those things uh, may or may not be true, but they aren't what makes us as a church bland, saltless, or dull, lightless. We become bland and dull when we trade what makes us as a church distinct for what our culture has to offer. When we make it all about me rather than making it all about Jesus. If the world looks to the church and sees people chasing the same meaningless things that they are chasing, they'll ask, Uh, What's the point of the church? They would be right to ask that. We lose our distinction when we trade our first love of Jesus that sets all of our other loves in order for a love of money or a love of power or of sex or success or even our individuality. When we make these things into ultimate things, when we pursue a blessing that is anything other than God's presence. But these days, We are especially in danger of becoming bland and dull to the world when we make church a one-player game, when we make it all about me, my likes, my preferences, my gold standard, my people who agree with me. Watching the news, reading the articles, it's clear. Our culture divides people into categories along the truth of like attracts like. But people aren't all the same and shouldn't be all the same and conflict ensues. And if we allow those categories and that rule to seep into how the body of Christ works, well, we've lost our light and our saltiness. If the self-centeredness and the ethnocentricity and the racism and classism and the socioeconomic division that is causing so much pain in our culture around us that people so badly want to escape is what they find when they see the church, then we deserve to be trampled underfoot, no doubt about it. As a church, it isn't easy to be salt and light, to find our blessing in God and not in our own pursuits. It's not easy to treat life like it isn't a one-player game, like it's not all about us. Church, Jesus, is what we have in common, and that's enough. What does the gospel offer to a broken culture? It offers right relationship with God, with each other, with all creation, found when we desire God above everything else. What does the church offer to a broken culture? It offers the world a chance to taste and see what this shalom looks like when it's lived out in a group of people. To see what a difference it makes. 
to see how these relationships work, not just in theory, but in concrete practice with real people in real life, to see what happens when people who are different from one another have only Jesus in common and allow that to shape all of their values. We cannot show the world how God restores our broken relationships with each other by ourselves. We can't demonstrate that for people without each other. It's not a one-player game. We need each other. That's why the church is so important. It's where we practice putting others ahead of ourselves so that we can go into the world and do likewise. In Jesus, the divisions of ethnicity, tradition, social and economic status, education, gender, they don't matter like they do out there in the world. See Galatians 3, 26, 28, Colossians 3, 11, and Ephesians 2, 19 to 22. All that matters is that we are being built together to become a dwelling where the Spirit of God is, where we desire God more than anything, where we let Jesus and not culture set the standards of blessed and where we trust that God will keep us together no matter how different we are. Where it's not about me, my likes, my preferences, but it's about God in us and God being known in the whole world through us. Church, be salt, be light, be different from the culture. Jesus' desire is that through us, the people of the world would come to desire God. Don't give in to the temptation to be saltless and lightless, to be bland and dull. Have you ever heard the phrase, in the world, not of the world? It's a popular way for the church to think of uh, its relationship to culture. It's the idea of, we're walking on the same earth as everybody else, but we're made of different stuff. Now, we may be residents of Chilliwack, but our true citizenship is in heaven. We may live in a culture with broken values, but we have different values, and we don't let those broken values touch us or influence us. We are in, but we are not of. It comes from John 17, 14, and 19, where Jesus is praying for his disciples the night before he is crucified. He prays, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Jesus himself is saying that his disciples are not of the world, just like him. They are no longer like the world. They are different, they are separated, they are sanctified, they are set apart. But let's not miss the point of what Jesus is getting to in this prayer. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. David Mathis, who writes on the popular website desiringgod.org, says Christians should stop using the slogan, we are in the world, but not of the world. He says that saying it that way tends to make us comfortable being separated from people that we have different values from. We're not like them, we're different, and if like attracts like, we're happy to be over here and they can be over there, and there the two shall meet. We don't like culture. We're okay to leave people in the culture. That's not at all what Jesus is saying. It's the complete opposite. Instead, Mathis says we should say, we are not of the world, but we are sent into it. Not of, but sent into, and I wholeheartedly agree. That's what Jesus desires that the church 
does. You see, Jesus jumped into the mud pit of the earth and he pulled us out of that slimy pit. And now we are called to jump into the mud pit of the earth and get people to Jesus. Be salt, be light, not of the world, but sent into it so that people will come to desire Christ. What does the gospel say to our broken culture? It says there is another way, Jesus. What does the church say to our broken culture? It says, taste and see the Lord is good. Shalom. Here are some discussion questions. As a church, we're called to be salt and light so that people can taste and see God is good. Is this what church is about for you? Why or why not? How do you see this happening? Like attracts like can range from harmless to devastating. What are some ways that the church should live differently? Not of the world, but sent into it. How do we as disciples and as a church reach our culture with the gospel of Jesus? Thanks for listening to the Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. For more information on Sardis Fellowship, please check out sardisfellowship.com.